Intersection is brought to you by Social Health Institute, exploring new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategies. Learn more at socialhealthinstitute.com. And when I realize that I am the first generation that is expected to outlive their children, that scares me. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. What's your greatest passion? My greatest passion is to try to do things for people that nobody else will do, to understand people that nobody else will understand. It's, it's a mission and it's something that I've always been interested in and I've made it my life's work. My name is Paula Watt. I, am, I have a PhD in holistic health science. I have, I'm an advanced practice nurse practitioner. I'm a family nurse practitioner, a women's health practitioner, a menopause clinician. I have too many shingles hanging on my wall. And my dad said that that would get you, with that and a dime would get you a cup of coffee. So whatever it's worth, the more education you get, the more you realize you don't understand about things. So. What do you do? What is your job? My job is the director of an academic nursing center, which is, it has a definition, that is a nurse-managed health center and a land-grant institution responsible for teaching research and service. So we're the intersection vehicle for being able to do that for our college and for our university. Tell us, um, we are, you're housed in the Sullivan Center, is that correct? So we have an on-campus facility in the Sullivan Center where we do um, employee health, we do employee health and wellness on campus. We also see other community members, but our primary stuff off campus is reaching into the community, giving back to the community because we're land grant, and especially gap, filling gaps in care and underserved rural populations. What does it mean to have the world's first 100% solar-powered mobile health clinic? Well, that's just as good as being in the Goodness Book of World Records, I think. But what does that mean for South Carolina? the state where this mobile health clinic is based, inside the land-grant institution, Clemson University, whose primary purpose is educating undergraduate and graduate students to think deeply about and engage in social, scientific, economic, and professional challenges of our times. Well, improving the health of the underserved communities while providing a teaching experience for public health students, I think it fits rather nicely. Dr. Paula Watt, Clemson University Sullivan Center Director, has been dreaming of the day when they could have a four-wheel drive solar-powered clinic so they could serve rural communities primarily in Greenville, Oconee, Pickens, and Anderson counties. All of this while demonstrating to Clemson students the challenges in caring for the most vulnerable patients. I had a chance to hear Paula's passion and vision. I was able to talk with her about serving the underserved, the uninsured, the people who desperately need access to quality care. We also talked about serving and training the rising healthcare providers who are learning what it means to serve populations of the future. So why do you do this? What is the need? So, you know, everybody thinks Clemson University has all the money in the world and they would be able to do anything they want to. We find money every way we possibly can to go out into our local community to take care of people because there's just people everywhere that need it. They cannot go to the doctor, they use the ER inappropriately and you know that they don't know any better, they don't have any other resources. People take care of people when they're sick but they don't help them understand how to stay well 
and that has probably become my greatest passion over the years. The population has been my passion, but trying to get the word out about wellness to that population is now my greatest passion. You know, I think back when um, when I was a grad student at Clemson, and you know, mom worked in the clinic, um, and I would come in, and one of the biggest things that I noticed immediately is you were having a large conversation about wellness. You're talking about women's health. You were talking about holistic medicine. You're talking about things that, in my mind, were far beyond the years of South Carolina at that time. Right. Especially given the fact of what was coming down the pipe. What was? What are some of the beginnings here in the Sullivan Center and your work that kind of propelled you into the work today? Can I give some background? Well, the Sullivan Center itself you know, is a couple of different things. One, we're student based. You know, we're focused on trying. Um, to give students something different, an edge that they're that they're just unique, and when somebody sees a, the Clemson brand in a student, that they see somebody different. We want providers that know and understand how to work with these communities and these underserved populations. And if we take them to, you know, the I'm not downing the hospital in any way whatsoever, but when, if you go to the emergency room, you can get access to anything you absolutely need. Well, when we go into the rural community, you don't have MRIs, you don't have x-rays, you don't have anything. You've got to figure out how to assess a patient, how to help them without sometimes even them being able to afford medicine. So that's probably, you know, one of the bigger things that we try to teach or convey to students is that not everybody can afford to do absolutely everything. Um, the other thing is, is that I probably spent most of my career in wellness because it's a, something personally I'm interested in and I've always tried to take care of my health. So the Academic Nursing Center came on board because the, um, the rural, Appalachian Rural Commission actually wanted to establish a nursing school at Clemson in an Institute of Higher Learning. And they built the nursing building and they built it in 1970, it opened in 1978 with an Academic Nursing Center there. That was novel and completely new at the time. That was something that people had never heard of, especially in South Carolina. Um, just a few years later, there was a human resources director, and that's when wellness, you know, wellness, everybody thinks of wellness now as being everywhere, but that's still very limited where it's at and what we're doing with it. it but Clemson got on board early and wanted to do some kind of programs for their for their employees, and so we, we started that. We had a, this wellness program, um, wellness works program years ago, and long story short, you know, it's kind of evolved over the years. We've tried to make it what we what we felt like it needed to be within certain confinements of resources. Um, but it's, it's kind of evolved over the years, and now it's, it's, it's actually a first-dollar benefit for the state health plan for, for our employees, which we think is tremendous because they, they didn't have to pay a lot to do that program. We weren't making any money off of it, but it was great for student education, the students learning how to do health education with clients. And it was it was uh, an opportunity to serve employees, let them know who we are, get that trust built, and then they could come to us for other things also. So we've been we've been in the wellness field since the early nineties. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting is that um, what you're doing is well positioned. Um, you've got you know Clemson has a very competitive nursing program. Right. It's really hard to get in. Uh, there's a waiting list. We're in rural upstate South Carolina, so there's a need from a medical standpoint. Um, and we're also in a place where um, we have some really good health systems around us. Right. Um, so there's opportunities for research and teaching. Um, talk about a little bit of 
how you're trying to educate the nursing students into seeing the real world away from their basic clinics, their basic uh, labs. You know, they go go the they walk into the hospital, they get their basic things that they need, but what is it, what's the experience here through the Sullivan Center that you work with the nursing students? So, and when we talk about nursing students, you know, the very first thing that we try to do is multidisciplinary because we, we realize that no man, uh, we talked earlier today, you and I talked earlier today that, you know, Clemson doesn't want to be the, the know-all, end-all for everybody. That's just not the way it works. Collaboration is the way it works. But multidisciplinary is so critically important in this day and time, whether it be patient navigation, whether it be um, survey services and specific services, whatever the need is there's got it's got to be um, accomplished by a group of individuals helping somebody and, and bringing different kinds of things to the table so we have not only nursing students we have our undergraduate nursing program we have our graduate nursing program we have our genetics program but we have public health science we have one of the, the best public health science programs in in the nation they they're very popular program have very smart very smart students that come through and want to, the ones that want to do something clinical or pre-professional they'll come and work with us also do that, a lot of their clinical hours we have recreation therapy that work with us to do physical activity and fitness assessments and not only disability but again getting into that wellness arena then we have language students so all of these students can go and they can go to a what I'll call a traditional office and, and they'll see, you know, 10 patients and of those 10 patients, at least two of them probably don't have resources, maybe more, don't have, don't have the resources they need and they just don't understand that they can't write a prescription for a medication that costs $400 a month for every patient that walks in the door. And so what we're trying to do is, is all of the experiences that we offer to the students. Last year we had over 150 different clinical experience opportunities for students and all of those were with some relevance of underserved population or some population that had some kind of need and we want them to recognize that and be on the other end we drive it we drive into a farm field or if we drive into a community they see what the patients drive they see where they live they see what they do or don't have to eat you know, and that's that's where we are when we talk about social determinants of health in this day and time. We, that's where we are, is try to understand who the person is. Sir William Osler said at the turn of the century, years ago, he said it's better to know what kind of patient has a disease than what kind of disease a patient has. And that's not a popular philosophy in our day and time in the medical model of the way that we've learned to do things. Um, and. You know, that's, that's probably, I'm not the most popular person always. I'm always having to defend that I have a degree in holistic medicine. And what that means is, is I'm going to try to find lifestyle ways to help people. And a lot of people believe our underserved populations can't do that. You know, they don't have money for, to buy food, so they can't, they can't buy healthy food. Well, it's amazing to me that these populations, we've seen tremendous results taking this philosophy and this you know this paradigm shift that we're trying that we're seeing now in the United States we've got to do more the, the patient has got to take some responsibility but we've got to give them the education to be able to do that with that here you have this mobile clinic that we're setting in mm-hmm. how did it start what made the first mobile clinic created was did y'all see a need in the community did someone were you already going out serving people where did this begin? What was the impetus to make this happen? Well, again, you know, it's all about finding those gaps in care. So if you're a land-grant institution, you've got to give back to the community, but you don't have to replicate what's already going on in the community. So 
one of my former deans kept saying, you know, you got to think about this as health services research. You got to research better ways to do things. You got to refine it. You got to teach it to the students how to do it. And then you got to give it to the community and move on to the next problem. And so back in the day when the center first started, they were, they had a business plan. They found a need in the community and they tried to fill that need. And, and that was long-term care or assistance with long, with uh, individuals that were in homes. And that's kind of where they got their roots in the beginning. And then they moved into some areas of immunizations and childhood well physicals and screenings. And so as things evolve in our community of what the, the major needs are, that's where we are. We either try to fill a gap a void that's not being met, or we try to research something that maybe there's a better solution, and then if we're really good at it, then maybe we can give that to the community and move on to the next issue, the next problem. But that's that's kind of where we started out with that. Now, initially, we had the center with a business plan, and then a few years, 1978, we're we're celebrating our 40th year this year, which is amazing. It's tremendous, considering that. Most nurse managed health centers go out of business. 50% of them go out of business within the first five years because they just don't have a, a, the ability to do the operational things that it's going to take. So it's, it's a tremendous, it speaks to, it speaks to Clemson that they supported us and kept us going and they believe in us and they believe in what we do, that what we t do teaching matters, what, what we do for the community matters, and that they want us to, to continue and to be here got people that love to come in here and tour so they're all opening doors and looking around to see what they can do right now so the first mobile health clinic was it a car or was it a van what was it and what made y'all get it get in the car and, or get in the vehicle and go so in the mid 80s the then governor of the state i mean we've always had a problem you know south carolina is on the bottom of the rung for so many things and the then governor said gosh there's there is this mobile movement in the united states and maybe there's a better way and, and south carolina certainly has its rural communities and well, let's try to do something about access to care. So he bought a unit. He bought some, you know, mobile clinic, had it upfitted, and offered it to the three land-grant universities and said, in South Carolina and said, I'll give you, uh, you can write for an award or a grant. I'll let you do some kind of a pilot and test it, and I'll give you funds to either operate it or, you know, put fuel in it, whatever, and we give you this unit and let you use it. Well, at the time, so, um, Clemson was pretty vested in that kind of thing. Of course, we're more rural than the other grant universities and we were very vested in that and we were the only ones that even used it so we found some needs we already knew about needs in our community and we started out with migrant health farms there were over 200 apple farms in Oconee County and the eastern migrant stream ran from Florida to Maine at that point in time and these people would come through just large amounts of people at a time as the weather changed and as the different crops would come in and they would move up the coast and they, did, they just didn't have any health care. So we spent a lot of time doing acute care in, in migrant populations at that particular point in time. So that's where we got our roots. But then, you know, we just kind of go with the flow and we evolve. Those farms closed. Um, you know, apples, apple farming became something different. There are only two farms left. They were doing juice. They weren't doing apples. And they didn't need as many migrants. So we moved into a different community. And we still did migrate. We just moved into a different. We moved to the vegetable farms over in Pickens and Greenville County. So we just kind of go with the flow. We're flexible. In fact, in my office, we give the Gumby Award to who can be the most flexible. So we laugh about our flexible walls in the mobile clinic and our unit being very flexible and, and being able to evolve with things. Our people are taught to be that way. 
you know, medical professionals are not always that way. They're, they're, we're very we're very oriented to things. We want things done a certain way, and and everything has to be lined up, and we want every resource there is possible. And you have to learn to be able to do with less. Tell me, how does this match this mobile health clinic define? as it matches with a land-grant institution. What is the basis of a land-grant institution and what, how does this match inside, especially with an institution that was very agriculturally started? Right. You know, it was A&M, it was Clemson A&M as it started off, um, and that eventually became Clemson College. But those two initial grants were for the military and for agriculture, for agriculture education and economic development. How does this fit in and how does this match to the mission of the institution? So any institute of higher learning, a seminar of higher learning, which is what Thomas Green Clemson wanted for us, right, and to establish that. And so if, you, if you've been given the land to do that kind of thing in a community, then you've got to give back. You know, you've got to, you've got to be a good steward of that land. And what that means is, is you've got to be a good steward of the economics, of the social environment, of the health of the individuals that are around you. So we've... The three things that have to happen are education, or teaching, research, and service. And we have historically thought of ourselves more in the service realm, but that's really not true. We really literally are a place where all of those things can kind of come together. So we have heavy teaching load. We go nowhere without a student. Um, so we have that education component. Several of us are also educational instructors in the classroom. But classroom's great. Um, we have a we have a state of the art simulation lab, and we've got you know multi millions of dollars worth of equipment that are in there, and and we teach students, which is great. We want students to learn on dummies, right, and not on dummy people. We want them to learn, and then so they get that education, but they got to go out into the real world, and this is this is that connection. We're the clinical learning lab, so that they can take it from the classroom and then take it into the clinical. And then that health services research part of it, you know, what? how can we do things better? Can we teach underserved populations lifestyle medicine where they can, they can use the agricultural background that we have and understand about foods and, and how to get those foods and then the physical activity and stress management and, and how to take care of their health? Can we teach those populations that? How can we teach that while we're doing a million other things for them? So all of those things are what we're about and how we do that. What's it like having, maybe for you, and maybe even the students, you know, you load the van up, drive on out, you head up to a location. Talk about what's it like to pull in, especially for maybe a first-time student or even for you. What's that like to drive in? to a place of need. So this weekend we're going to the mobile health clinic talk and we've been asked to speak and the title of our talk is Controlled Chaos, the Art of Patient patient Navigation and Care Coordination. And we called it Controlled Chaos because I had a student one time, we always asked for student evaluation, student satisfaction of what they thought their experience was like with us. And one of the students came to me and he wrote it down and he said, this is just chaos, this is just absolute chaos. Well, we kind of like we laughed because, yeah, it, it almost appears very chaotic, but believe me, it's controlled chaotic. We, we know exactly what's going to go on and what we're doing and, and how we're going to make it happen, but we can't control all the, the different factors in the environment. So students don't necessarily, it takes them a while, right, to understand it. So we have students that spend a lot of hours with us. You know, they'll, they'll start out on the mobile clinic. Almost all of them on our satisfaction surveys will say, that was the best experience I've ever had. 
nurses one. The patients appreciate you so much. And it's not that a patient doesn't appreciate you when you go to a traditional office or a hospital system or wherever. It's not that patients don't appreciate you, they do. But in an environment like this, they can't get it any other way. The majority of the people we see or the experiences they've had have not have, haven't been the best in the world because because of a lot of factors. I mean, they wait till the last minute. They get really super sick before they go anywhere. They haven't got an established relationship with anybody, and they go try to get some kind of help. And you know, there's just so many different factors and lack of resources. But on, on here, we're doing something for them and in their community, and they recognize that. It, you just you just never, as a healthcare professional, you go into that for a reason. You want to help people, no matter who it is. The bottom line is they really want to help people. And when they get on the mobile clinic and the patients are like, thank you so much. I can't believe that you came here and helped me. And, you know, patients cry, and they're like, I haven't had a physical in 20 years. We've had patients come in and say, you know, I've had this breast mask for two years and I, I was scared to go get help and, you know, you're getting me help now. And, and the students, you know, they cry, they laugh, they, they, just, they just love that interaction with real people that really appreciate and need their help. Um, close to 10 years ago, um, I did my first story on a, uh, the mission events. I don't know if you remember the mission events. Um, so, you know, the statewide mission events where for a while they rotated it, there would be one in Greenville, one in Columbia, then one in Charleston. And then they got to a place where they just sent everybody to Columbia. And then it got to a place where the Duke Endowment realized that, you know what, we, we should stop funding hospitals $1 a day per patient uh, because we realized that hospitals are competing for that money for indigent care. So we're going to start doing access health networks. And I have, it has amazed me being in these clinics at four o'clock in the morning and they have thousands have lined up. They have found car rides from Virginia. They have come from places that we have never heard the name of the city. Um, they come and they're desperate. And the thing that I walked away from is, number one, these are the most thankful people like you talked about. Very thankful that they are, they were worried about their, that their heart just felt weird and they didn't know who to talk to. Or they were in this cycle where they just didn't have access to the medications that could keep them out of the emergency room that could run up a $250,000 bill if they could just take the blood med, blood pressure, pressure meds. Those things. And so, but the thing about it that I love about the mobile clinic that is different is that people were coming to the space. They were coming from all over and they were waiting in line and they were waiting and waiting and waiting and hoping to see someone. And now, instead of that, it's like, let's just go to them. Yeah. What is it like to go to them and to provide a service, not only just provide a service, but provide teaching, connect with research, we can understand these populations, and now we can really talk about the true social determinants of health. What is that like? So, you know, what goes through my mind when you say that is one of our very first mobile clinics when I came on board with clinic on this clinic was in Upper Oconee County. It was 35 minutes to the closest provider 
and the local health system. I mean, they had nobody in that particular community, and they had a, a large morbidity and mortality problem with cardiovascular disease. And so we, we went into that community trying to help with them. And, it, and again, you know, there's two sides to this coin. One is that you go into that community and we became friends with people. You may, you know what they drive, you know what's going on with their kids, you know when their birthdays are, you get invited to birthday parties. You get, they had, they had all these community events and they would invite us to come personally and, and want us to come stay in their homes. And, you know, it was just, it, you just develop these real true relationships with people. And when, when you're in that community, I mean, they give as much to you as you to them. I worked years ago with the touch, the National Touch Points Project, which T. Barry Brazelton just died at the ripe old age of 99 this year, and he just did a tremendous amount of work, you know, for children and families in the world. Um, and he talks a lot about relationship, building that relationship. But he he developed his approach and how he wanted to deal, help people understand how to deal with patients, for two reasons. One was when he went around the country and said, "What do you lack?" What do you like the least about healthcare in the United States? People didn't say, I don't have access to care, I don't have third party reimbursement. People didn't say that. People said, I don't like the way the doctor talks to me or treats me or that he, we can't talk one on one or I don't feel comfortable. The number one complaint they got is that they didn't have any kind, didn't feel like they could have a true conversation with the provider. And the other thing that was interesting during that period of time is that 50% of pediatricians were going out of practice in the United States. And this is in the early 90s in Boston where he was at. And he was like, we got to stop this. There's, some, there's something wrong on both sides. When the people that have spent their lives and their educational background preparing for this kind of a, of a field, and you know that they were there because they really wanted to be, but yet... And then over here, the patients are hating what's going on. There's a disconnect here, so what's the problem? And he developed an approach that specifically looked at that and how can you keep providers feeling good about what they do? So that's, you know, that's a goal for me too. Teach these students how to understand the underserved populations and take better care of them and have relationships. And you know, he talks about things like having a relationship with somebody that you don't like. You can have a great relationship with somebody that you don't particularly like if you do it the correct way. And he would he would talk about that because it's so much more meaningful and you both get so much more out of it. I'm never going to get anywhere with you, with your help, if I don't have a relationship with you and you can tell me the critical things you need to tell me. I've got it. So it's, you know, it's a give and take for both. So I was looking at the statistics this week and 2011 to 2014, they did another study across the nation of all specialties of specialty physicians. And it's up to 54% now of people that get out of the field because they just hate what they're doing. Something wrong with that. Now a quick break to ask you for your help. Did you know Intersection Podcast is part of a network of shows and we're looking for your feedback? We would appreciate your help if you could take a few minutes to fill out a short listener survey. Go to survey.intersectionpodcast.com. That is survey.intersectionpodcast.com. We hope you'll share your experience. Hi there, this is Bobby again. We need your help. If you like Intersection, we'd really appreciate you taking a moment to leave us a review. Whether you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, please take a moment to leave a review. This is important because it helps others find our show. Thank you so much for your help. 
why is this work so important? Why is it important to drive this out into the middle of the field? Why is it important to fund these things? Why is it important to provide not only the access to health, but the education for the, the nursing students and the connectivity to the providers? Why, why is this so important? You know, you can look at it in any way that you want to. You can look at it that it's your bottom line. It's your it's coming out of your pocketbook. You can you can think of it in any way that you want to think about it. But it, it again, there but by the grace of God, go on. You know, we all could be there, and that's what I've seen more than anything is we've gone from a population that you know maybe they couldn't do better or in a social setting that they just didn't understand they could do better, and and a lot of it might have been I won't say it was caused by themselves, but it was caused by their social environment. But we've gone to a population that, you know, they worked their whole lives. They did everything right. They did what they were supposed to do. But one adverse event or, or like you said, a $250,000 hospital bill because something major happened or, you know, something threw them over the edge. It could be any of us that are out there. And so we, we have a responsibility. Those that have need to have a responsibility to help those that don't. And we have a responsibility to help them to, if we want to get them up elevate them to be able to be more economically successful they can't do it if they don't have their health we got to start with our children we got to start with the least and try to help them to be stronger and be able to get there and in order to do that we got to have providers that understand it we got to train the future professionals we've got to we've got to research ways to do it more efficiently and better and, and you know what's the outcomes what works and what doesn't you can, you can draw things on an ivory tower. You can sit in your ivory tower and draw the most beautiful scheme and decide that this is the way something ought to happen. But it's got to work in the field. It's got to work here. And that's why it's important. Um, recently, I did a uh, project um, trying to educate South Carolina, specifically certain areas of the stroke belt, mm-hmm. about the basic symptoms and sign and symptoms of stroke. Right. We know that South Carolina has a massive challenge, especially in the I-95 corridor. But as you look at that map and all the big morbidities, you see the I-95 corridor, but you also see the rural areas. Where we're not close to the urban, where we have large medical centers. And um, and if you also start overlaying that with technology and Wi-Fi and you know, internet connection, there's no access to information to understand how to learn how to be more healthy or to get to someone that could help them with their health. Do, when you look at those statistics, does it say, and especially with MUSC, now do you look at it as we've got to, we've got some big areas we've got to go after and we've got to connect people with in this age of population health? to get into these communities because they're not going to come to us. Right. Why is that so important right now, especially in this age of, you know, big health ownership, that it's more important to get into the communities, to be in these mobile health clinics? Why is it, from your perspective, why is that so important? Well, you know, you, you, one of the things that struck me about what you said is, you know, you're thinking about certain urban areas in South Carolina, you think they have every resource in the world. And what you find is, is that if you count the statistics in those communities, they also have the underserved populations. So just because it's there, just because you build it doesn't mean people can come or can access it. I looked at a schema recently that was, was created from the whole idea of, of the healthcare for all. And it, 
I'm going to show it to you. You've got to look at it. It's just crazy. And it and it's all of the different agencies that have some involvement. Well, if you tried to follow that map, we both have really good educations and we understand a lot of things, but there's no way you could do that. If you and I can't navigate the healthcare system, how can somebody that has lesser education or just in a bad social environment, they, you know, they haven't had enough to eat today, they can't think. So there's so many people in every single corner of this state, not just in our rural areas. Our rural areas need it. People don't want to go to our rural areas because they think they're not going to touch as many people. And, you know, you want to put your resources where you can touch the majority and the most amount of people. But there's a, again, you got to research that and find better ways. And that's why we want, you know, we want a fleet of mobile clinics. We want multi-sized clinics. We're looking for funding right now to try to find uh, some smaller units that can then go into somebody's home and just, you know, do one-on-one kinds of care if necessary. But how can we make that affordable? Well, we can't afford not to make it affordable. Tell me, could you break down what are the top five things that you see in the communities that you go to? What are, is it high blood pressure? Is it, you know, what are the the top five diseases or uh, uh, things that people are facing in the communities that you go with? Well, you know, the focus that I have is cardiodysmetabolic syndrome, and, and there's a reason for that too. But if you think about obesity and the obesity-related diseases, you could just kick off everything from there. And not all of the diseases are caused from obesity, but obesity definitely causes all our other diseases. So hypertension, hyperlipidemia, uh, diabetes or insulin resistance. So if you put those, just those four things, then you have stroke. And then in South Carolina, we're still, we're, we're, we have wonderful agencies that are working on, you know, teen pregnancy rates and trying to improve that. Well, but there's still a lot of work to be done. You know, we've made a 50% improvement. We still got a long way to go with that particular issue. So those are some of the always, always, always is cardiovascular disease that we're looking at. What scares me about that, and when you think about the alternative medicine world, you, you can look and you can see. We've made great strides in certain areas with our medicine. You know, we, but we, as an as a, um, industrialized nation, we still are very poor when it comes to managing chronic disease and, and preventing that. We haven't made great strides in those particular areas. Sure, we can do heart, you know, we can do heart surgery, and and we can we can repair somebody when they've had a, a major event or, or an accident, and we can give just the right antibiotic, and we know exactly what the bacteria is. A lot of other stuff, we're just not making the headway we need to make. And so that preventive level of care, that that primary prevention, where we get in there and teach people how to prevent it before it happens so much more critical and is that why the vision of this clinic was bigger than let's put people into an examination room let's give them um, write them a prescription and send them on their way that's why you have the awnings that you can do health education that you can talk about food it was is that a part of that vision to do more than just get people through to give them something but give them some education so that they can see better lives yeah, you know, one of the things that happened in South Carolina is we have a we have a, a discrepancy or morbidity and mortality in these certain populations, and we had money to do breast and cervical cancer screening in South Carolina for a number of years. In fact, we were one of the forefront. You know, South Carolina was one of the forefront of trying to figure out ways to help that and improve morbidity and mortality in South Carolina. The frustration for me is when I first started doing that, and for everybody was that they give you money to go do that particular thing, which was really critically important. It was key. It saved taxpayers a lot of money because if you can 
catch breast cancer in early stages, then you can do, it costs a lot less to take care of it and you can, survivorship is better and you know, just the community is better in general. It was an important thing. But I would go out and I would do those clinics and the patient would come in and hadn't seen a doctor in 20 years or in a provider in 20 years and they would get their breast and cervical cancer screening done but they had high blood pressure or they had diabetes or they had, you know, they had so many other health problems and I had nowhere to send them. At that day and time, we didn't have access to help. We didn't have free clinics. We did. We had nothing we could do for them. And as you know, as a person, as a human, it just felt so wrong to try to help somebody with one thing when they had 15 things that were wrong and you couldn't do all of it. It's almost like driving out into the area with, I'm going to help people today, and then you walk away like, I didn't even scratch the surface. Oh, I call it Band-Aid medicine. You know, I feel like we're putting little Band-Aids on big, huge, gaping wounds. And that, then we got to stop that. You know, we got to back up. So what have you been able to track success over the 20 plus years that you've run, been running these mobile clinics that we are, we are moving forward? What are the places that you feel like you have really gained strides? I really believe what we do matters. I, I believe our students are committed, they're smart, they have a desire to learn, but they have a desire to help people. I, I really feel like our programs are wonderful. We have state agencies that work with us and help fund different things. We've gotten multiple diversified ways that we can take, and we can we literally will take a patient right now and we can do four different programs on that patient at one time. And what, you know, the strides that I've seen is, is that we've got the funding, that we've found ways to try to fund some things, not enough. I mean, there's not enough funding, but we found some to try to do, at least the patients we do see, try to do something. But we've, we've worked with our processes to find ways to do that efficiently and get the patient through in a timely fashion and be able to do all these different screening education, prevention, as well as their, you know, their immediate problem today and, and get all of that stuff done in one setting at one time. That's that's an evolution that I've seen that's really changed that we've got this down to an art. Yeah, it still looks like chaos sometimes, but it's controlled chaos. You know, it definitely is a controlled environment of, yeah, let's get them as much as we can possibly get them. Um, question about technology and it's something that's interesting to me is that you do see a lot of rural communities. You see some migrant health, you do some migrant work. Um, in the age of EMRs and case management, the only way you can do case management is take a person from here and spend time with them and work them through. But a lot of these populations are very transient and, and also very skeptical of technology. They don't want to give too much information because they don't know what you're going to do with that. Talk about the challenges in these populations of trying to track success on these patients when it's you have a technological barrier you have a trust barrier and you also have just a geographic barrier because you don't know where they're going to be next so it's kind of hard to case manage them or work with them in that capacity and that again is why it's so important to teach people how to take care of themselves and get to that primary prevention right from the start because that might be your only opportunity to mm -hmm. see that person and they're gone the other thing is you know having those partners having that community champion that is a trusted member of their community that patient that can either do patient navigation or that can assist you to be able to do it. Um, we've got a connectivity grant recently. We're trying to make sure that every Clemson extension office, you would think Clemson had every resource and they could they could get wonderful connectivity in every office. You know, we have a we have an office in every at least region in South Carolina. 
And so if you, you would think that they would have everything, but they don't even have the best connectivity. If the lines aren't there, then they, they can't always get it. So we're trying to make sure that that's there so that there's multiple places. We talk about the public library. We talk about, you know, their providers in the community. We always try to tie them into a provider. But, you know, who are the the churches? Sometimes we work with the churches in the community. or Who, who are those groups in the community that can help us? If, if we need somebody to just actually go out there and talk to somebody and say, hey, look, you know, you got a problem and they need to help take care of it or, or you need to call them. Can't, we can't give away information to the wrong people, right? But, but again, you know, how do you, how do you navigate all of that to find somebody? Those are kind of the ways that we try to build and try to do that. And then we frequently, we have our partners and we, we try to give them somebody locally that they can go to and we try to go back to a community on some kind of regular basis. So if all else fails, we'll show back up there in six months. Maybe we can catch them then. So that's that's the kind of some of the things that we've tried to do to prevent that. Every Almost everybody has a cell phone. It's amazing. But whether or not it's turned on or turned off when you need them and when you try to call them, it might be an issue. How many people have, do you think you've served in the many years of having this mobile clinic? Well, the funny thing is, is I could almost tell you if we went, and, and occasionally we do, and we start adding numbers up, and it gets kind of incredible. We served about all together for our mobile clinics, our off-site clinics. We have, we have places where we go and partner with people, and we take our staff and not necessarily our units because, you know, the unit can only go so many places. It can't be everywhere. So we have off-site, we have the mobile clinic, and we have our on-site services. So for all of them, we served between 3,500 and 4,500 people. Most of our, most of our existence depending on how many providers we had, you know, we have turnover and, and economic environments at the time and that kind of thing. So we stayed kind of in that category. We've exploded with the with the support and the you're doing great work and we really need you out there more that we've been given in the last few years. Last year we had over 9,500 visits. I mean, that's where we've gone. We've gone from this steady 35 to 4,500 and a third of those were mobile. Per year? Per year per year that we kind of did we're a small you know we're a small group of people doing a lot of work to last year we had over 9500 and we we've been steadily going up for the last 10 years we've steadily kept climbing and you know we went to 5000 and then 6000 and then 7000 you know we just we just keep climbing and you know our goal oh gosh we want to be in every every county that needs us that's about 800 per month it's a lot that's a lot it's a lot and for a small staff with right. one clinic right. and what's the geography so now we are literally statewide, literally. So we serve, we, we have some focus areas that we're working with right now. We've got, you know, where do you start when you're trying to do research? So we, we have our big programs where we're doing multiple things, and then we have some focus programs. Our focus programs with our MUSC partners are in Williamsburg County, Barnwell, and Anderson. And those counties were chosen for, for varying reasons, but basically, basically looking at population health and, and where needs were and what kind of things did we want to try to establish. And so we definitely are in those counties. But literally, MUSC service area, our mobile partner, the mammography unit, is 13 counties. We have a mobile partner at Self Regional, and they have counties and, and in districts Greenwood. in Greenwood area and the Greenwood proper. We are partnering with VCOM over in Spartanburg, and so we have we, we partner with some of Spartanburg Regional. We've been places with their mammography units. So the more we have Servants for Sight, which is which is a eye vision van, are one of our consortium partners. So the more people that we bring on board, and they say we can use you here. 
um, our partner for breast and cervical cancer screenings. They tell us, you know, almost monthly things change for them and they'll say, we don't have a provider in this community, but we have 4,000 people in that community. We know a qualify. Can you go to that community? So we have literally, we consider ourselves, instead of four upstate counties, we consider ourselves upstate all the time. Once a, once a month, right now, once a month, we are somewhere lower than that with our MUSC partners or with some of our other partners across the state. So you put a lot of miles on these tires. Oh yeah. It's a good thing we have real we have real truck tires because they, they're supposed to last a lot longer than you and I or our car tires. You know, just getting things like oil changes and all of those things that you have to think about and it, it's incredible. It's incredible. What's your vision for the future? Our vision is to have a fleet I hope we have a fleet. I hope we're so successful that we are working in every single county. That needs us. There might be a few counties that don't particularly. I hope we are in partnership and collaboration and everywhere we go that we are pulling up with other partners that can provide additional services that we don't. I hope that we have such a reputation that when any provider in a community sees the Clemson brand, they say, hey, I want to partner with them because they do great things. Not, oh no, what are they doing? They're going to take my patients. Um, I think there's always that element of, of some kind of, of tension that can be there. And I, I would like to see it that people say, yeah, that's it. Here comes the, here comes the help. Here comes the Calvary. It, and we don't think we're the Calvary. We just, we're just trying to fill one little small spot and be a part of a bigger thing that can happen in South Carolina and make a difference for all the residents. You know, one of the things that I am proud of this brand is we see more hospitals being built, more freestanding EDs being built. We see the brick and mortar being put up in these communities. But you don't need brick and mortar, do you? If you're gonna reach people, you gotta have those, but this is just as impactful. So part of our work is with those brick and mortars. I mean, we do, Greenville Hospital System is one of our big ones in the upstate, of course, and we go to a lot of their different facilities of Spartanburg Regional, we have Green, um, Greenwood itself, Self Regional Health System, MUSC. We partner with those because they have they have things in there inside that they can do or we can refer the patients in when we're doing one portion and we can refer them in for other things and that's important. That's critical and it's a good thing to be able to do that. But no, they can't drive they don't go into certain communities in certain areas because they, they don't the resources aren't there or the yeah, the needs there, but maybe the resources or the number of patients might not be there. But with this unit, you know, this is our largest unit. We have to have multiple sized units so that we can right size everything we do. And we need to go to a smaller community or do 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 a few really important things for a fewer people, fewer amount of people. We want we want different size units so we'll be able to go and do those kinds of things. And we want people to see that brand and say that is a partner. That's truly a collaborative partner that's trying to do good by South Carolina. Last question: Is there one story? one situation, one instance that will always be with you that makes you keep on doing this? You know, there, my heart sinks when you say that because I can think of so many different, you know, so many different people. But uh, just a couple of years ago, we had a lady that came in and, and she was one of those ladies that cried, you know, she came in and said, I, I've had this breast mass for two years and I'm just scared. And I'm, you know, my mother, she'd had a, she'd had a family member, a close family member that had died from breast cancer and she was scared. And, you know, I look at it and I think, how could you not go this thing? It was ugly. It was large. It was, you know, I knew it was going to be a problem. Um, but we, we got her help we got her help quickly and she survived and honestly when I saw the report when I saw the I physically saw 
what we were dealing with. When I saw the report, I thought, well, this isn't, you know, this isn't going to be a good outcome. This is not going to be good at all. And, and she did survive. And she survived to live to talk about it and talk about the mobile clinics and, and what it meant to her. And um, we had a patient not long ago, and, and she was there for, for a specific purpose, for a reason. But we took care of another problem for her. And she came back to my students, and my students were with me both of the, these two visits that we happened to have with this lady. And she came back, and she said, you changed my life. That's important makes me cry <laughs> you know it's important when you really retire what do you hope and want to see as you're sitting in your mountain house and hoping that the van goes by maybe what is the thing that you really hope for um, we talk about the fleet we talk about you know the all the technology and the pieces but when it comes down to it what do you what do you want your legacy to be here when you walk away from all this you know, I think about everybody, there's, I think it's one one person every six seconds of the baby boomers turns 65, and you know, these people that are coming down the pike are the ones that are going to be taking care of us. You, I have this friend that's a nurse practitioner, and I think she happens to be your mom, and we used to talk long ago, we, we, we were on these trips, and we talk about retirement and what that might look like, because of course, you know, we all live for retirement, right? And we used to talk about sitting on the front porch in our rocking chairs and what we were going to talk about and what we were going to see. And, you know, I hope when I'm sitting on that rocking chair, I, my grandchildren are in better health and they're living in a better environment. And I hope they don't have to worry about this kind of thing because I hope there's a system in place. If it's mobile clinics, if it's whatever it is, I hope there's a better system in place that I can just see it moving around. And, you know, if I can be just one little part of that, hey, can't, you can't ask for any better than that. You know, I guess I'll always bleed orange, so I always want to be proud of that Clemson brand. <laughs> you know, I, I, I keep on saying we'll have a last question, but <laughs> I have to ask this. Is health equitable? You know, that's the same thing as, as asking the question of what is health. You know, health is something different for every person. Health could be equitable. The outcome of our health could be equitable. It isn't. It just, it's not. And, and it's unfair that it's not. And it's sad that the equity is more than language services. Yes. It's more than just having access to the person to translate. Right? Right. There's more to equity. And I, I think back to three years ago or four years ago when one of the top executives at... South Carolina Hospital Association looked at me and I asked him from a communication standpoint, what are the biggest concerns that you have you know, over the next many years as you retire? Because he was about to retire. And I'm talking about my friend and uh, Alan Stalvey. And he looked at me and he said, social determinants of health. South Carolina has got a lot of work to do. Everybody everywhere in this nation has a lot of work to do. Why? What does that mean? We haven't paid attention to that. We've paid attention. You know, we, we want to be good. We like our technology. We like our things. We like our toys. And we want to be the first and the best and the first of the moon and the first of the... We want all of that stuff. And I think that's important and it's good. And in some ways that helps keep us in the forefront and keep us out there. But when you focus on those things and you don't focus on the simple... And again, when you don't take care of the least, we can only be as good as the least in the wheel. And 
South Carolina is a culturally diverse state. Very. You know, we, if you look at our manufacturing hubs and, you know, we've got, just let's look at BMW, for example. Right. You've got all different cultures all the way around. Yeah. You look at the migrant camps and the migrant farms and the pipeline that comes up through Florida and through Texas as people are looking for work. We've got that whole population. It's no longer just about who can afford it. We have a major workforce issue in South Carolina. We're looking for skilled labor, but wouldn't you agree that the only way that you could have a good workforce is to have a healthy workforce? Well, you have to have a healthy workforce. It scares me, and I'm, I'm serious when I say the baby boomers, you know, we're, we're turning 65 every one every six seconds. 50% of us are expected to have dementia. Who's going to take care of us? You know, we don't have the population coming behind us that have the compassion or the, maybe hopefully they do. We've got some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful young people that come through these programs. I'm excited about that, but they've gotta, we've got to have, they got to have the help. And when I realize that I am the first generation that is expected to outlive their children, that scares me. That's what scares me. I want things different for my children and my grandchildren. When I think about me personally, when I was 25 years old, I was in nurse practitioner school, and I was told that I would not walk by the time I was 30. I, you know, contracted a, a, an autoimmune dysfunction, an autoimmune disease, and I was told by a physician, you are not going to be walking. You'll be in a wheelchair by the time you're 30. I think about a friend of mine that had the same condition. I knew enough or I had the interest enough to find out, and I had the ability to get the things I needed in my lifestyle. And it was my lifestyle that I changed that changed that course for me and changed the entire course to where I've led a completely normal life. But yet one of my friends that I'm... Uh, morning at this point in time died last week because she didn't have the resources didn't have that capability didn't live that lived in a very you know unhealthy environment and it had a totally different outcome she's not sitting on the porch with her in a rocking chair with her best friend she didn't make it and I cannot imagine losing my children because I didn't teach them better I didn't do a better good enough job in getting the health equity and getting them the opportunities that they needed just the knowledge, just the education. Paula Watt, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Bobby. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and exploration. Most importantly, the many intersections inside the world of storytelling. Intersection is powered by the Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts exploring digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.